0: You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, the gospel according to John. We're in John chapter 12. John 12, our focus this morning will be on verses 30 to 36, but I want to pick up reading in John 12 at verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to, to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. We thank you for John's gospel and the way that he reveals to us the glory of the Savior. We thank you that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God, and that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you for that life of obedience to the law, that death as a sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for that resurrection again the third day and for the promise, the confirmation that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. May it be the case that we would all be found prepared for that day, that we would be washed in his precious blood and clothed with that wonderful righteousness. May you open hearts, dead hearts, to receive the truth as it is in Jesus. And may your Holy Spirit set forth Christ in all of his offices to save to the uttermost all who draw nigh unto God through him and may you speak multitudes of encouragement to the hearts of your people. May you strengthen us with might in the inner man. May you build us up in our most holy faith, and may we indeed shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation, and may we have that boldness and courage to hold forth the word of truth. Do forgive us now for all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness. Cleanse us in that precious blood of the Lamb, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to John chapter 12, we come to the Passion Week. This is basically the book of the Passion. Well, that will start technically in John chapter 13, verse 1. We have the book of Signs, and then we have the book of Passion. And basically, the Passion means or it refers to Jesus' sufferings and ultimately his death on the cross. So he's come into the holy city of Jerusalem, and we find him debating and discussing things concerning his mission with uh, with these people that, are uh, opposed to him for the most part. We've already seen the announcement of the arrival of the hour. That's in verses 20 to 26. He says in verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour in John's gospel refers to his death on the cross to effect the salvation of all those whom the Father had given him. So there's the arrival of the hour in verses 20 to 26. And now we find the explanation of the hour in verses 27 to 36. The last time we considered verses 27 to 29. Notice again, just by way of review, verse 27, "'Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? "'Father, save me from this hour.'" similarity with the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. We know that he is exceedingly sorrowful. We know that he sweats drops of blood while he's there. We know that the problem that he is facing is not necessarily the violence of godless men, but it's the very cup of God's wrath, God's fury, God's curse against sin and sinners. And Jesus says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He does something very similar in this passage. Again, now my soul is troubled. This speaks concerning his true humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ is one person, two natures, divine and human, and he took on our, uh, uh, our humanity so that he can save us from our sins. So this is proper to true humanity, being troubled at the prospect of a, of a horrific death. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So our brother just pointed out in the reading in Matthew 12, Jesus was resolute. Jesus was confirmed. Jesus was determined. Jesus operated according to the divine plan. Same emphasis here. And then he speaks in verse 28 and he says, Father, glorify your name. Now, the divine response from the Father comes back in verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. In short, he means that through the life of our Lord Jesus thus far, through his signs and miracles, through his doctrine, God the Father is glorified but he will be glorified again at the lifting up of the Son of Man when he goes to that cross, when he takes the punishment due for our sins, and then when he's raised again. The Father is supremely glorified in the ministry of the Son. And so that's the backdrop, and then that brings us now to the explanation of the hour to the people that Jesus is speaking with. We'll notice that specifically in verses 30 to 33. Notice first we have this confusion with reference to the, to the people, verse, I'm sorry, verse 29. Notice, the, therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered, thundered others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now the thunder makes sense. If you look back in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 19, Psalm 18, you'll note that God's theophanies, that means a manifestation of the divine presence is often accompanied by thunder. You see that in the book of Revelation as well when we are face-to-face with the living and true God. So thunder makes sense. But as well, some thought that it was the voice of the angel or a voice of an angel. That was consistent with Jewish thought. They thought that God mediated through angels to communicate divine revelation. But it does underscore the fact that there was an actual voice This wasn't mass hallucination. This wasn't Jesus in some sort of a mystic zone, but rather there was a sound that came from heaven. And I think the undergirding principle is, is that they didn't understand it. When we drop down specifically to verse 34, and it says, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? They're not seeking information here they're not looking for Bible study. They're not looking for a little bit of confirmation to to, to justify his claims. They are challenging him. They reject him. They despise him, and they're going to offer him up to the cross in the space of a few days. In fact, after our section in chapter 12, verses 37 to 41, we see John's theology of unbelief. In other words, what these men do in terms of their rejection of the Lord Jesus isn't surprising to the Lord Jesus. It's not surprising to God the Father, but it's in accordance with Old Covenant Scripture. So back to our particular passage, when it says they didn't understand, that reflects on their spiritual condition. It reflects on their spiritual state. It reflects on the fact that they've rejected the very word of God incarnate. Therefore, they don't hear the word of God as it thunders down from heaven. As Edward Klink says, the people could not make sense of the voice of God the Father, even as they did not understand the word of God, his son. So don't miss that as we work our way to the cross in John's gospel and as well. When you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's not that we're just dealing with a bunch of neutral sort of hapless souls that are kind of wondering who this Jesus is. By this time, everything is in place. By this time, there has been a great antithesis. By this time, there are those who are for Jesus and there are those who are against Jesus. And those who are against Jesus are like beasts. We will consider that this evening when we consider a Psalm of the cross for our Lord's Day meditation in Psalm 22. These were beastly, vicious, vile, godless men that delivered up the Lord of glory, the one who came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So they are spiritually ignorant. They are spiritually dead. And yet Jesus in his mercy and grace goes on to explain to them the very significance of the hour. And that brings us to his explanation there in verses 30 to 33. And this is where we're going to camp this morning. Notice specifically, he speaks of the voice of the Father, and then he speaks concerning the death of the Son. So in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now that's likely idiomatic. I think it probably means something like the, the, the voice did not come because of me only, but also for your sake, because the voice did come in response to his prayer. So we see the father's approbation of the son's prayer and the father says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it. Again, it's idiomatic. It's not only come for me, but it's also come for you. But as well, there's a sense where John the theologian puts this in his gospel so that later readers would reflect upon it and see the significance of it. The very persons to whom the Lord of glory came are the very persons that are resisting him and rejecting him and want to ultimately kill and crucify him. So he speaks concerning the voice of the Father, and then he speaks now concerning the death of the Son in verses 31 to 33b. Notice specifically in verse 33, it says, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That's explanatory. John is filling in the blanks for us in case we're still that thick and we're still that dull and we're still that ignorant that we haven't followed the Lord's explanation up to this point. So John just tells us that whatever Jesus is saying in verses 31 and 32 is connected with his lifting up. What is the lifting up? The lifting up is his death. And in short compass, the Lord Jesus Christ does something here that you find in other passages of Scripture. You find in Romans 5:8, for instance, God commends his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In one verse, you've got the entirety of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, the, the entirety of the gospel. You've got the bad news of man and sin, 1 to 3, and the good news of God's rescue of man and sin through the redeeming work of Jesus in verses 4 to 10. You've got Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. So you've got these verses located all throughout the scripture that if you only had that passage, you would be able to effectively evangelize a sinner. Perhaps you're in a plane and you're on your way down and you've got an unbeliever next to you. Well, Romans 5.8 would be a good one. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 would be a good one. Uh, 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 Romans 4, 25 would be a good one. But so would John 12, 31 and 32. In other words, Jesus explains the rationale behind his lifting up. Jesus explains the significance of his death. Remember the context, the hour has come. What's the hour, Jesus? The hour is, is the time when my father is glorified through my cross work. And that hour has great significance, not just for us here, but it has great significance for all men everywhere. And when we consider that hour and the significance of it, the death of the Son in particular, Jesus speaks concerning three things here. Jesus speaks first concerning the judgment of the world, second, the triumph over the devil, and thirdly, the salvation of sinners. In fact, in Jesus Christ, we have the champion, the victor, the blessed sovereign that is able to defeat our three biggest enemies. Who are our, big three, uh, our three biggest enemies? Now, before you say Justin Trudeau, I'm talking a little bit more, you know, meta-narrative. I'm talking in the bigger scheme of things. Who is the enemy of God's people? Who is the enemy of God's non-people that we hope to become God's people? It's the world, it's the flesh, and it's the devil. It's that unholy trinity. Three forces that ally together against us to destroy us. And so isn't it wonderful that there was this hour, that there was this event, there was this champion, this Messiah, this Christ that was coming, that now has come to defeat this threefold enemy? So what does he mean when he says what he says? So again, it's connected to his lifting up. He mentions that in verse 32. John explains the significance of that language in verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the three particular things connected to his death are the judgment of the world. Notice what he says there in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, he's already talked about judgment. In fact, go back to John 3 for just a moment. John 3, you see something concerning judgment there in Jesus' language. John 3 at verse 18. This is on the heels of the statement that as Moses lifted up the serpent, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. Notice that language, lift up. That's what Jesus uses there in verse 32. Lift up means to go to the cross. It means to be exalted, not on a throne, but on a cross. And so after talking about that, making that glorious statement in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He then says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we move through this passage, though. He didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. The mission of the Savior, the coming of the, the, the Messiah, was to rescue. It was to redeem. Uh, Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to do what? To redeem those under the law. So picking up in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God." Notice in John 5, he speaks concerning judgment there and specifically to highlight his divinity, specifically to highlight his relation to the Father, that he's the son of God, not by adoption and not by sort of uh, uh, creation, but he's the son of God by nature. And as the son of God by nature, he engages in befitting tasks, God befitting tasks, one of them being judgment. So he speaks concerning that in John 5, verses 24 to 30. And now in our particular passage, he says, as the hour has arrived in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. What does he mean? Does he mean at the cross, there's some sort of a, of a judgment? Yes, that's what he means. He doesn't mean the last day of judgment. He doesn't mean the final judgment. He doesn't mean that, that, that day that scripture tells us where God will raise all men from the dead and we will be assembled before the throne, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left, the sheep unto everlasting life, and the goats unto everlasting death. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the cross being the focal point of history, the cross being central to all of God's plan. The cross being the very apex of God's dealings and doings with this created order. And our relationship to that cross is, in fact, a judgment. If we look to the cross in faith, we've been judged righteous by God, only for the virtue of Jesus imputed to us and received by faith alone. But if we look to that cross and we disdain it, or we look to that cross and we disregard it, or we look to that cross and it just doesn't really have any effect upon us, then there's a judgment rendered by that. We're on the wrong side. We're excluded from that kingdom. That's what Christ means concerning now is the judgment of this world. In other words, the cross is the central point. It is about the cross that you have to do. Whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, that is the judgment that Jesus is speaking to. Again, Edward Clink makes this observation. He says, what is important to notice is that the judgment of this world is directly connected to the cross. As I said, you may not feel judged right now, maybe you do, I'm pretty loud, Cam's pretty loud, we yell a lot, and you might feel a little bit uneasy by that, but, but there is a judgment. You're either with Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either the light or you're the darkness. You're either in him or you're in Adam. He goes on to say the cross is simultaneously the glorification of Jesus and the judgment of the world. It is the throne upon which the King of Kings is crowned, his glory. Yet it is also the point of decision for the world, either as the place of their salvation, in which the cross is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on their behalf, or the place of their judgment, by which they stand already condemned. So if you are not in Christ, the judgment has been rendered. But the blessedness of the text beyond us or beyond this verse indicates there's still hope. There's still time. If you're breathing in God's world right now, you're under the sound of God's gospel right now, I would take that as a very encouraging thing. The fact that you're gonna hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and the the way that he saves to the uttermost, all who draw nigh unto God through him, is, is an emphasis upon you to look unto him in faith. So he speaks concerning the judgment of this world. Now notice, secondly, the triumph over the devil. So verse 31, now now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. A few things here. First of all, the identification of the devil as ruler. You can turn to John 14, specifically at verse 30. John 14, specifically at verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. John 16, specifically at verse 11. John 16 at verse 11 or ju- uh, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the specific word ruler is absent, but God of this world is present. Same sort of a concept. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, whose minds the God of this age has be blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 describes the devil in this language. Verse one, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And then in 612, when he bids us put on that full armor of God, he gives as the argument because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we wrestle against notorious forces that are unseen. Notice in 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So going back to John chapter 12, when the Lord Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The identification of the devil as ruler is seen elsewhere in the New Testament. But I think Cyril of Alexandria gives us a good caution here. He says, he calls him the ruler, even though that is not, strictly speaking, what he is. God alone is the king of all, but because they are under the influence of stupidity, people selected the devil as their ruler. That's the language. That's the suggestion. That's what's happening here. The people are under that bondage. They're under that bondage because by and large, they want to be under that bondage. Look at the horrible things that obtain in the body politic. Do you ever just want to say, well, you know, you voted for this. If you hadn't have voted for this, perhaps we wouldn't be in this particular mess. The man in Adam basically voted for this. He wants the bondage. He's in the bondage. And and now Jesus is saying there's a time coming connected to the cross where that bondage is broken by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the beginning of the devil's overthrow in Christ's earthly ministry. Turn back to Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 12. Our brother read from Matthew 12. We see the beginning of the overthrow of the devil in the Lord's ministry there. Notice specifically in Matthew 12 at verse 24. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "'This fellow does not cast out demons "'except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons.' "'But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, "'Every kingdom divided against itself "'is brought to desolation, "'and every city or house divided against itself "'will not stand. "'If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. "'How then will his kingdom stand? "'And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, "'by whom do your sons cast them out? "'Therefore, they shall be your judges.' But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and he does, then the kingdom, or surely the kingdom, uh, 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 I'm sorry, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So there is the sense where the beginning of the overthrow of the devil takes place in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Turn over to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. So we trace out the beginning, and then we move to the final overthrow relative to the devil himself. Notice in Luke 10, the scene is Jesus sends his disciples out. They go to preach. They go to teach. They go to cast out demons. They go to heal people. And then they return according to 1017. It says, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It's a whole sermon there specifically on verse 20 in terms of where our joy ought to be. Our joy ought not to be in our performance because that's fleeting. Our joy ought to be in the sovereign grace of Almighty God. But beyond that, notice what Jesus says. Through the life, uh, rather the ministry of these apostles, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So going back to John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the beginning of that overthrow is in the ministry of Jesus. But the finality of his overthrow is in the death of Jesus. That's what he is doing. He's connecting the cross, the hour, to the overthrow of the devil. He deals with the world in his death. He deals with the devil in his death. And then as verse 32 will explain, he deals with our sin in his death. The threefold enemy of God's people, the threefold enemy of image bearers is taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. So in terms of the completion of his overthrow, turn to Paul's letters. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, just where you see this in terms of the successful triumph of Jesus at the cross to destroy the devil. Well, Colossians 1.13 hints at it or tells us the, at least the, the, the macrocosmic transfer of, of, of individuals from one kingdom to the other. Notice in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the king, kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now look over at 2.15 speaking about Jesus, speaking about the benefits accrued by his death and resurrection, speaking about the redemptive benefit enjoyed by the people of God, the apostle underscores this. Notice in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And then notice over at Hebrews chapter 2, I take Pauline authorship here as well. So this is still considered Paul's epistles, Hebrews chapter two at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So for the believer, you can't blame your problems on the devil. Even for the unbeliever. You know, I've mentioned before, when I was a kid growing up, at least in California, there was a comedian called Flip Wilson. And Flip Wilson's tagline was, the devil made me do it. That's not good theology. Might make people laugh, but it's not good theology. The devil is not a sovereign being. The devil is not omnipotent. The devil is not omniscient. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is creature. When we sin, brethren, the devil may have enticed us. There might have been temptation there. He does roam about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, according to 1 Peter chapter 5. But we need to take responsibility and be big boys and girls. And when we sin, we need to admit it. God, we were prone to wander. We were prone to leave the God that we love. The Lord Jesus at the cross defangs the devil. The Lord Jesus at the cross destroys the devil. Notice in 1 John. First John, two places where John speaks of this in addition to John's gospel. Notice in 1 John chapter three, specifically at verse eight, he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Solidarity, what the devil does, his minions do. What the minions do, they see it evidenced in their father, the devil. But Again, he doesn't make you He doesn't formulate your brain. He doesn't impose his strength upon you so that you go out and sin. But for this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then one final place in John is in the book of Revelation. Our John who wrote the fourth gospel is the John who wrote the book of Revelation. And he speaks concerning the defeat of the devil in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is a beautiful passage of scripture connecting the defeat of the devil to the first coming of the Lord Jesus. So we often think, well, it's going to be when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, then he'll finally vanquish our foe. He does finally vanquish our foe to the lake of fire, but with reference to the the, the enemy, the devil himself, he is greatly thwarted. He has stopped, been stopped. He has been defeated. And that's the point in Revelation chapter 12. Based on the incarnation of our Lord, based on his uh, death on the cross, his resurrection and ex- exaltation of the right hand of the Father, the devil is a fourfold loser. Revelation 12 speaks of the devil's defeat in four ways. The devil is defeated by Christ, the devil is defeated by the angels, the devil is defeated by the church, the devil is defeated by the the, first century church, and then the church subsequent to that. That's the whole point. Notice in Revelation chapter 12, specifically at verse five, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1260 days. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now notice the power behind this. And they overcame him by what? The overwhelming force expressed in the second advent of our Lord Jesus Oh, that's certainly gonna be manifested. That's certainly something the Bible points us forward to, but they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So going back to John 12, when is the ruler of this world cast out? It's at the cross. The father is glorified. The son is glorified. The world is judged and the devil is cast out. In other words, what Christ accomplishes on that cross takes care of our enemies. And again, the last and probably most formidable one we'll see in just a moment, but just by way of some practical thought regarding the overthrow of the devil, the result of his overthrow. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you if you're not a believer? Pretend I'm, well, not pretend. uh, Imagine that I'm trying to tell you how glorious Jesus is. How wonderful Jesus is, how, how blessed his gospel is, how, how good that good news really is. And in order to do that, I, I, I got to tell you, you know, that it, it's not just your sin, it's not just this world, but, but it's also that, that grand enemy of souls it's, it's the devil. What happens when a, when a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith? when the Holy Spirit regenerates them, when the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again, when the Holy Spirit implants the graces of faith and repentance in their heart so they receive with empty hand the goodness that God gives us in Jesus. What does that mean practically for the saint of Christ? What does that mean for us in our life in this present evil age? Well, I would suggest in the first place the children of God no longer walk according to the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 You once walked that way, but you no longer do walk that way. That's why in Ephesians 4, our walk is to be characterized by the calling with which we were called. uh, uh, Ephesians 4.1. And that's why he says in Ephesians 4.17, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. That's why when he moves to, to chapter 5, he says we're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, we're to walk in wisdom. Why? Because that old walk has been destroyed by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're no longer subject to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You're free men and women. As well, the children of God are no longer in bondage because of a fear of death. This is the visiting, the same passage as I just read. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, brethren, I'm with you in terms of this fear with reference to manner. If it is the plain, hurtling to the earth, that's a bit of a concern for me. But the destination isn't. And I think that's the point of the apostle there in Hebrews 2. The circumstances and our manner as to how we exit this lower evil world, that's in the hand of our good God. It could be, you know, incredibly horrific. I'm not here to encourage you this morning. I want to tear you right down. Uh, just, just kidding there's a lot of ways that people go out of this world. So, so, you know, a bit of a fear of death in the sense that you're walking, walking through the woods. You don't want to meet a grizzly bear. That, 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 that doesn't mean you're contrary to God. You're a blasphemy, you know, blasphemous wretch. No, the fear there is connected to what's on the other side. We're no longer in bondage. We no longer have that, that restraint. We no longer have that that, that trembling at the thought of what's on the other side. We rejoice in the language of the apostle Paul that that, that death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. Why? Because of what Jesus has accomplished in the destruction of the devil. And then as well, the children of God are no longer prevailed upon by the accuser of the brethren. Now listen to the language. They're no longer prevailed upon in the sense where they are debilitated. The, The accuser of the brethren still tries. The accuser of the brethren still tries to usurp. The accuser of the brethren does try to try to get at you. But this is the language in Revelation 12, 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. What does that mean? And the accuser comes and says, how do you dare call yourself a Christian? Because Christ Jesus bought and paid for me. It's not my performance. It's not my merit. It's not my works. It's not my law keeping, but it's Christ alone. That's how we refute the attack or the assault of the devil who comes to accuse and upbraid the people of God. There is great benefit in the cross. There's great benefit in terms of this world. The judgment has come. In terms of the devil, he's been defanged. He is no longer that arch enemy of our souls. Again, he roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, is what John tells us. So with reference to the world, Jesus kills it. Again, metaphorically, by way of judgment. With reference to the devil, he kills him by the work on the cross. And that brings us finally to the flesh, brings us finally to us, brings us finally to our own sin, Notice what Jesus says there in verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. The language is employed in John 3:14. already mentioned that. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so also must the son of man be lifted up. Turn back to John 8. You see a similar convention used by our Lord to describe his death. John chapter eight, specifically at verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me, I speak these things. So language that he's employed, now language that does serve to explain the significance of the hour and to bring home the truth with reference to that hour. If I am lifted up, There's judgment upon the world. If I am lifted up, the devil is cast out. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So there's three things here that we ought to appreciate. First, the means. What is the means by which sinners come to salvation? It's the cross. In case you didn't get that yet. In case you're still, I'm not really sure about this, Butler. It's the cross. The cross vanquishes all the foes. Again, that most formidable one is our own flesh. When you read Pilgrim's Progress and and you see him swimming through that that river Jordan to the celestial city, the devil is in heaven. He's he's away from the world, but what's still the entanglement? It's that wretched enemy we can never fully disenfranchise ourselves from. It's us, right? The devil might be messing with a whole bunch of other people on a given day. You may be, you know, in Cancun, in a little villa, and not a soul around. Well, there's probably lots of souls. Let's say up in northern BC, you're out on a little piece of property. There's not a soul around there. There's no influence of the world. It's what the monks thought. If I just sort of withdraw myself, I'll be holy. I'll just sit up on a uh, a big pole, and, and there I'll be holy. The devil can't get at me. The world can't get at me. You foolish monk, Guess what's going to get at you up on the top of that, that pole? It's your own heart. See, that's the problem with man. We've sinned against God. We've done what is evil in the sight of God. And we can, we can try to blame the world that the world has helped, provides a lot of the backdrop, provides a lot of the temptation, provides a lot of the sort of stuff out there that looks enticing to us. We, we can blame the devil. Again, he does give enticement. He's certainly in charge of that sort of avenue with, you know, all the lusts of the flesh out there. But in the final analysis, it's, it's us that took the fruit. It's us that ate. It's us that transgressed. It's us that rebelled. It's us that lacked conformity unto God's holy law. It's us who have violated that law. So what's God's remedy? God's remedy is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the hour for which the Son of Man came. It's the hour that he was resolved about. It's the hour that he was determined by. It was the hour that he wouldn't shrink back from, even though it was horrific for him, according to his humanity. But that cross is the means by which you and I have everlasting life. See, we've got two problems when we sin against God. We need to be forgiven of that sin but we also need a righteousness, right? A lot of preachers, and and I'm not picking on them, but they get the forgiveness part down, and we should preach full and free forgiveness in and through the blood of our Lord Jesus, but we need a righteousness. We need to be able to stand in the presence of God. This goes all the way back to the, the former prophets in 1 Samuel chapter 15. What does God say? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. God demands perfection. There's no sort of uh, 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 relaxation on the part of God in terms of our obedience. When, when did we ever think that, that God was going to grade on a curve? Well, as long as I get a D minus, I'm going to make it into heaven. Kids, we used to be graded like that. I don't think you are anymore. It's all about good job and good effort. But you used to be you know, bright and you got an A and you were a moron and you got an F. Well, some people think, well, if I just do D minus work, then, then I'll get accepted by God. No, we need to be forgiven, but we need a righteousness. That's the life of Jesus. That's the obedience of Jesus. Why does he do what he does for 33 years? For us men and for our salvation. Why John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us for us men and for our salvation. We need to be cleansed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness. And it's connected to his cross, his life of obedience, his death as a substitute and his resurrection again the third day. That is the Christ upon whom we believe. And it is that Christ that brings salvation to needy sinners. So back to our text, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, that's the means. Notice then the method, the method that he employs. It says, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That draw there speaks concerning the effectual calling of God. The drawing there is what we've already seen in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, God is sovereign. God is glorious. God not only ordains the death and resurrection of our Jesus, but he also ordains the means or the method uh, uh, of appropriation. How do we receive that? Well, he picks us up out of deadness and sin. He gives us new life. He draws us to the Savior, not kicking and screaming, not whining and complaining. He makes us willing in the day of his power. It is a most blessed thing. And so the effectual call of God is what lay behind the methodology in terms of our salvation. The reference is to the effectual call of God placed upon the sinners for whom Jesus died. And when he says, I will draw all men to myself, that doesn't mean all men without exception. Don't think for a moment, well, you know, maybe that, I think it was was, Origen was right, it was a universalist, everybody's gonna be saved. No, no, that's not a biblical doctrine. The idea that every man is going to be saved is not biblical. I mean, there's many a passage that tells you otherwise. You need to believe the Bible here. You need to understand that when he says all men, he doesn't mean all men without exception. He means all men without distinction. He means all men in the context. Remember in uh, John 12, 19, the Pharisees are just upset, aren't they? If we don't stop this man, if we don't silence this man, if we don't put him to death, then, then the world will come after him. Well, right after that, what do we see in verses 20 to 22? Greeks want to see Jesus. Sirs, we would see Jesus. So so the Pharisees, to a degree, were right. If we don't stop him, if we don't silence him, then all the world will come after him. Remember what he says in, in verse 24? He's speaking in terms of metaphor. Well, now he's explaining that metaphor. Look at verse 24. In our, t- in our passage in John 12, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And that much grain comes from Israel. That much grain comes from the Gentiles. That much grain comes from every, uh, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation throughout the earth. So the Lord Christ here is highlighting the nature of his death. In terms of the immediate context, all sinners from the Greeks, from the Jews, those who have been purposed by God will know the salvation of our blessed savior. But in terms of the the wider context of John's gospel, John 1 29, behold the lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. John 3 16, God so loved what? He loved the world. John 4, 42, after the salvation of the Samaritan woman, and then the Samaritan men, what do they come to realize? We know now that he he is, in fact, the Savior of the world. So Christ here, as he explains the arrival of the hour, underscores the fact that it's his death. And that death brings glory to the Father, it brings glory to the Son, and it brings great benefit to the people of God the devil is taken care of, the the world is taken care of, and our own sin is taken care of through the cross work of our blessed Savior. Well, in conclusion, just a couple of thoughts and then we'll go. First, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand John 1.1 and John 1.14 are key to understanding John's gospel. The word became flesh. Who's the word? The word was God. It's the only... God could save fallen humanity. Man couldn't. Man couldn't make his way to heaven. Man can't find his way back to the Garden of Eden once he's, you know, thrown out. It must be divine in nature. That's why the veil of the temple is rent from from top to bottom. It's God coming after sinners in and through his son. It's not sinners going after God. So with reference to Christ, he must be divine in order to satisfy, in order to do what he's supposed to do. As our brother pointed out yesterday, it was his own law that, 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 that he was uh, uh, satisfying, his own penalty that he's satisfying on the cross. It is absolutely crucial that the Son of God, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, be that one person in two natures, divine and human. As the father said, whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. So he took on our humanity with everything, essential properties that that are true of man, except sin, of course. So the person of our Lord Jesus Christ is set forth here. You see his true humanity in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And you see that divinity in terms of the efficacy of his work. If I went to die for you, brethren, it might be a good example, might be a bad example, but if I went to die for you, there'd be no efficacy, there'd be no benefit, there'd be nothing that would change you or, or bring blessing or acceptance with God. But when God the Son comes, when God the Son goes to that cross, when God the Son is cut off, when God the Son carries out the divine purpose and plan, there's efficacy, such that he will draw all men to himself. Secondly, we see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in a snapshot here. And we, we should think about enemies. Do, do you ever think about enemies? Well, you know, I've got these enemies out there, these guys that don't like me because I cheated them one time, or they cheated me, and I don't mean that. I mean spiritual forces, the dark things in this world that oppose you and that oppose I. Those things are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, they obviously expressed in various ways, to be sure, but you can categorize your problem today with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's it. That, that's as simple as it gets. What's your problem? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Only if there was an answer to those things. There is an answer. It's in the hour. It's in the death of the Savior in his life, death, resurrection. There's hope to be had in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him in faith and you will have everlasting life. And that is precisely how he ends this particular discourse with these particular men. We'll visit this God willing next week, but notice in verse 36, while you have the light in the context, I think he means while you have me in your midst, Jesus is the light, light from light, God from God, true God from true man. He's been introduced in the prologue as light. Well, he says to these men, while you have the light, believe in the light. Don't reject it. Don't resist it. Don't say no to it. What is there about the Jesus in this passage you couldn't possibly long for or desire or crave? if he takes care of my threefold enemy he's the one i want if he's going to bring the betterment to my soul and bring me into that heavenly kingdom then he's the one i want he is in the language of the bride altogether lovely and chief among ten thousand you should want him and if you do want him what's the response it's right there from him this isn't me, I didn't make this up, I didn't write John 12:36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light, that you may be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. May you indeed believe on him, Look to him and know the joy of being found in him. Not having a righteousness of your own, which is from the law, but that righteousness, which is from God, received through faith in our Lord Jesus. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of the Savior's doctrine here. Thank you for the efficacy of his cross work on behalf of his people. Thank you for the privilege to preach and proclaim this truth in the church throughout the earth. And we pray that many from every tribe and tongue and people and nation would gather together before that throne, that great multitude that no man can number. Until that time, most high, we pray for the blessing of God upon that preached word today that many would come to a saving knowledge of our, of our Lord Jesus. And even now, open hearts and convict of sin and demonstrate the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to him, uh, all, all who draw near to you through faith in him. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can turn in your hymn books to 568 as we close our service singing the doxology in praise to our great and glorious God, number 568. and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Father, thank you for that wonderful gift of your Son, the Son of your love. We pray that you would help us today to glorify and honor you, to call this day a delight, and to find refreshment from the presence of God Almighty. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, please be seated for a brief time of meditation.